This is an ABC podcast. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint for Living. Time for Lost and Found. And hard on the heels of a program we made two weeks ago on Bluestone. This week, Sandstone. Dilly, you brought me to the... Well, we're somewhere well below the root system <laughs> of perhaps the world's most determined fig tree. Yes. Um, well, we're standing between two buildings um, in Roslyn Gardens in Rushcutters Bay. Delia Faulkner. And I brought you to show you the, um, this, this amazing cliff face that runs behind the buildings on this street. Um, and it gives you a sense of the way that sandstone in its wild state often intrudes into the into the Sydney landscape and I think Sydney for me is a city that has a good deal more wildness looks a bit more untamed than other cities and I think one of the reasons are these fantastic sandstone cliffs that you see particularly out mm. towards the harbour edges of the city. As the early colonial folk here determined to find a flat space of ground but <laughs> cut their way into the into the mm. into the very living rock that's right well the rocks were literally built onto the rocks mm. um and here what i love about this um uh, cliff that we're looking cliff face that we're looking at as well is that we've got these huge sort of stepped blocks of sandstone so you can see the different layers the way that it would have originally formed and then we mm. look up to this uh, amazing Morton Bay fig tree that's digging its roots um, into the cliff it's got itself very firmly anchored and then above that what we have is a wall that I think is maybe not early colonial but probably maybe late Victorian um, with very um, very uh, carefully cut oblong bricks of sandstone um, all forming the top of the cliff so we've kind of got the the wild Sydney and then the colonial attempt to tame it and then the and then the <laughs> then the tree saying well we'll see about that and uh, <laughs> and the tree very resolutely saying I am staying here that that tree has uh, well to say it has soil to grow in would be a, a vast exaggeration <laughs> well that's, that's one of the natures of Sydney sandstone as well that it does have all these fissures and cracks mm. and that's why Sydney has a unique ecology because the, the, the sandstone being a sedimentary rock has all these has these little fissures and so you can see the way that some little seed at some point I don't know maybe even about a hundred years ago it's hard to tell has you know dug in there found a little niche there's been a little bit of moisture in there and then it's you know found the found the the crack in the sandstone and work, worked its way in determinedly. Um, and you can see that somebody's actually tried to hack <laughs> hack the roots off and they've hacked the, a whole tree um, further up, which is, you know, very Sydney as well, I suppose, in a way. But, you know, I don't think that's going to last for long. Um, you can see that that tree, that, you already, know, those roots are already it's starting to, come, to back, yeah, yeah. come back. As you say, too, we see in this section, this, this, this cliff face of the, of the wild stone, you see those layers. You yes. say, see the way yes. in which, uh, over sort of imponderable spans of time, mm. this stone mm. was laid mm. down. And you look at the different colours. You can see where the stone seems to have been more freshly broken, and then where it's sort of weathered on the surface. So I don't know if this cliff was originally quarried, or if it's just been hacked back a bit to put the beautiful 1970s or 60s apartments that we're standing yes. next to <laughs> in. But some of the um, some of the sandstone is. Um, Ruth Park used to call it tabby-coloured, and I think that's a beautiful description. So it's got that those gingery um, and white and grey elements to it. And then you look at the sandstone next to it that um, obviously hasn't been broken off as recently, and it's covered in lichen, it's yes. sort of green and, and uh, grey, 
and it's a different colour. But apparently sandstone, when it's cut for the beautiful buildings that we see around Sydney, it, was, it comes out grey and then it's exposure to the air that turns it orange. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and such, such is the Sydney sort of familiarity with it. We've got another, another block of flats behind us right up again. I would yep. say it's no more than a metre and a half That's off right. that wall and, and the bottom one, two, three, four, five mm-hmm. floors of that building butt straight into the wall. Well, it's amazing what you see behind and between these buildings. And again, I think it's partly the nature of these sort of sandstone yes. cliffs that people had to negotiate. But if I were to take you another few blocks away down into Elizabeth Bay, there's a grotto, their secret grotto um, between two blocks of flats and a great big sweeping sandstone staircase from Elizabeth Bay House, from um, Alexander Maclay's huge estate. Ah. Uh, and But that um, grotto that was put in about, I, don't, I think about um, 18, no, 1830 from memory, that, that grotto would probably have been a natural rock overhang, which is another sort of feature of the right. Sydney sandstone or, or jibbergunia. Which and yeah. softer stone gives yeah. way to it. Yeah, yeah. So you get these lovely erosions. I mean, you can see a pattern of erosion there. Um, what did you call it? Jibbergunia was the... Um, is an indigenous term. It's, it's weird. It's not one that's actually been brought back into use recently. It actually seemed to have been more in use. I think there's even a suburb or a, a house called Jibagunya somewhere out in the outer suburbs of Sydney. It means rock shelter. So, you know, you have the different layers of history here too, which I think are really, you know, very much part of the poetry in stone of, of Sydney. No city has been as profoundly influenced by its rocky foundation as Sydney, for its sandstone has given form and colour to its finest buildings, shaped its economy, guided its spread and protected its natural jewels. The rainforest gullies, coves and beaches made inaccessible to builders by its steep bluffs. Sydney lies atop six kilometres of sandstone and shale, And all of it was laid down at a time when the world's first dinosaurs, mammals, ginkgos and pine trees were coming into existence. It was a temperate, wet world. A time when leafy swamps flourished. One day, the debris would give Sydney Basin its coal mines. Tim Flannery, The Sandstone City. Here we are. And the curbing here is... Well, that's why I wanted to start it at this point. We're walking down Everts Road towards the harbour. I'm going to take some steps in a minute to, to head down. But you'll see that Sydney siders have <laughs> we've always been a bit profligate with our sandstone. And here we have sandstone-edged gutters. I've no idea of the history or provenance of those. But, I mean, they could almost be... They could almost be a remnant of what was actually here mm. because what we're doing is heading down, down steps that, that are next or to a little artificially created waterfall but that would have probably originally been a a waterfall because one of the things about Sydney sandstone as well is that it's a giant filter and water hits the surface and then often you'll have a rainstorm in Sydney and then quite quickly afterwards you'll see that the surface is quite dry. If you have a garden out in say the northern suburbs you'll see that Again, that the you know your garden will remain frustratingly dry even Suddenly after. Suddenly surrounded rain. by footballers. That's right. 
<laughs> so, so the, um, it being quite porous, the yeah, it's, water so it's, it's because it's quite porous. Yeah, the water will start to to filter through. So, mm. one of my very vivid memories from being a child was this sense of the sandstone being very alive and, and almost kind of quite a friendly sort of stone in a way for me when I was a kid because it used to have these great big sandstone walls weeping, uh, mm. <laughs> weeping water days after rain, which I just I still find fascinating and just loved as a, as a kid. This is what always makes me curious about it as a, a building material. Yes. A that it's it, it's so porous, mm. and B that it, it is it's quite mm. soft. It's quite a, a workable stone, and yet solid as well. It's well, mysterious. yeah. Apparently, once it's carved, it's actually a very very strong stone. Once it's worked in some sort of way, <laughs> and I think again that for me is part of the kind of I suppose all the fantastic ironies and conundrums of living in Sydney that it it is this material that has been so so sheltering so soft in some way those those jibagunyas have provided shelter for people you know for years and then at the same time it can be quite you know it's, it's often the face of colonial oppression if you like you know with our some of our our most you know official and officious buildings in Sydney are, have also been built out of out of the sandstone when you know it has, puts its hard face on. I think if, if a city is to have a characteristic stone it needs to work effectively in the, in the level of metaphor. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> One of the enduring mysteries of the Sydney sandstone is just where the tiny grains of sand that constitute it came from. Geologists employ a handy trick in determining in which direction ancient rivers flowed and thus from where they brought their sediment. They look for the remains of ancient ripple marks. Now, these marks are very distinctive and are readily seen almost anywhere in Sydney sandstone. They look closely spaced lines running through the rock at an angle. These marks are left behind when the ripples move forward just as waves do in water. Each ripple has a gentle slope which faces upstream and a steep side downstream. The sand grains are pushed up the gentle slope and then fall down the steep side one by one. The lines in the rock are the steep faces each covered by succeeding falls in sand. Once you understand this, you can never get lost in Sydney as long as you can see the rock. Tim Flannery, The Sandstone City. Why I wanted to come down and look at this wall is it's fantastic. Um, just the fantastic colour of it and the way that it's um, been, you can see it's been shaped partially by the wind, there's erosion patterns on it. Then we've got this fantastic lichen, kind of a, a pale green and a purpley lichen. It's a beautiful mottle, isn't it? It's a beautiful mottle and at dusk when you get the blue light, the whole harbour wall looks a kind of mauve colour, which um, I always find very beautiful. And then if we look over the edge yes. again, you can see that there's a whole lot of huge crust of mussels all around the... There's no site more evocative than, than Sydney Harbour, than yes. the, that rough sandstone wall That's going right. down to that tidal layer of mollusks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the way that you can never kind of quite work out where sandstone finishes and organic life begins it just seems to me that it has it you know other stones um, you know can look quite quite forbidding but I think again Sydney stone has that softer or more friendly aspect for me particularly yeah. when it is weathered in some way like this and when you do have all those kind of incrustations of color and, and um, organic life from from the from its life that it's still living 
and the beautiful way in which so many parts of, of, of the harbour side shelve out into those long tables of, of stone out that's into right. the water. That's right. And yet Sydney, you know, as we've seen from being at the cliffs, is such a mm. weirdly shaped city because most cities kind of move um, you know, downhill, uh, you know, slope down gently towards the sea. But about 90 million years ago, the sandstone was all sort of pushed up. So, and that's why we can see all those, those layers now. So it's, it's really unusual formation again right. for, a, for a city means you're always walking uphill as well. <laughs> there is that about Sydney. Yes. Always uphill and never down. It's sort yes, of a Narnia effect. Great mysteries. Yes. <laughs> this week I'm walking through Sydney on a, on a voyage of sandstone discovery with author Delia Faulkner. I, I mean, this is... It's so much a part of the place. What, what, is it, what does it do to the feeling of Sydney? What, is it, what does it make of Sydney, the well, sandstone? I think... It's, for me, it's lovely that Sydney's stone is a sedimentary stone because I think Sydney's history is, is kind of sedimentary as well. And in my book about Sydney, I'm really fascinated by the feeling that's, that Sydney has of, you know, being superficially very beautiful, but having these, these depths that, uh, you know, that you will often feel kind of drop away beneath your feet, whether they are um, depths, depths of time or whether they are just depths of, of you know, sort of ugliness and brutality, uh, that it has this dual effect constantly. And for me, sandstone is a, is a is a major element in that feeling of Sydney being at once a new city but also um, a very old city especially with its living indigenous culture as well but also this deep time that's I think so apparent. It's a, a place where things grow like shellfish mm. it's a place where things grow like trees mm-hmm. it's a, a place of shelter mm. in those harbourside caves mm-hmm. it's it's a prison as well. Yeah it's really it has a smell as well I think uh, some days again even after it's rained you get a very particular smell which is of that sand in the sandstone and because you don't get much of a layer of soil on top of it you also smell the leaves drying out so it's kind of like it's it's a it's a smell that's kind of like like um, tea leaves and it's also a really for me a very old smell and I think Sydney has very particular um has those the the briny harbour smells as well so you get this fantastic deep cocktail of of odours in in Sydney as well which I I really like I always enjoy. Sydney's sandstone region is an extreme kind of land environment for it supports a plethora of plant species indeed it, it stands in the top dozen or so environments on the planet for plant diversity yet it supports fewer animals than most thus its food web structure is as different from the sea as any land ecosystem gets its soil is, is so poor that even the miserly koala has a hard time making a living for most of the eucalypts grown on the sandstone produce leaves that are not nutritious enough to sustain it. Sydney's harbours and bays in contrast are relatively rich for there fresh and salt waters meet and rocky refuges abound. The difference between land and sea has meant that for as long as people have lived in the sandstone region they have looked to the sea for sustenance. The Sandstone City, Tim Flannery. Where we're standing was actually hundreds of kilometres inland when the Sydney Sandstone was formed. So 
230 million years ago, when Australia was still joined to New Zealand and Antarctica, there was a big river, about they, they think about the size of the Ganges, that pushed up. Um, and that's what brought the sand, which was already from very ancient rocks, up to Sydney. So this was all part of a, a huge floodplain. And so that's why Sydney sandstone has those layers and can sometimes even see what are called the bedding layers between the different um, sections of, of silt because this is pretty much where the, the river started to lose, lose force and power. So the ancient ripple lines of the sandstone came up from the south and uh, Tim Flannery in his introduction to his book of edited pieces about Sydney says that in sandstone that's left in place all the ripple marks point north because uh, you're still seeing the frozen flow, the ripple marks of the, the big river that uh, came up from the south and, and formed the sandstone which I think is pretty extraordinary. What a beautiful and deep yes, layer of time yes, that is. Yes, yeah. well, I had no idea of that, that extraordinary place beneath here in Sydney. <laughs> That's right. And so the other thing that I think about is fascinating is that Sydney Harbour's been carved at all sorts of different levels and layers. So some parts of the harbour have been carved by the um, Parramatta River, which is just an extraordinary thing to think about, but the timescale is so huge. And then even where, where we're standing, the, um, it has its weird little corners and its very particular sort of shape with all those sheltering little coves because those were often formed by water, like the rather pathetic waterfall that we just looked at, um, finding those cracks, those hairline cracks in the sandstone and again kind of burrowing down towards the harbour. Then, of course, it's sort of also the floodplain of that huge river from 230 million years ago. So for me, there is a sense of great mystery about the, the harbour. I think Kenneth Slessor captures that really well in Five Bells, where there is that sense that there's something something unsettled. In his case, it's, uh, it's the ghost of, um, in that poem, it's the ghost of Joe Byrne that's pushing against the portals of space. But I think that poem, one of the reasons it's one of the most, probably the, I think the most popular poem it's still ever written in Australia is because it captures something about all that turbulent deep time that's moving around in the harbour. And it's that, that point you made too about the, the way in which sandstone offers a point of, of, of weakness. Mm. It offers a place in which something mm. can be inserted or worn away. That's right. In my book I talk about how Sydney has this kind of chthonic level, this level of something you know, very, very often there, there being these kind of deep and to me sort of slightly sinister layers. And uh, there's an interesting history of attempts to tunnel under the harbour as well. The first sort of under, under the harbour tunnel wasn't actually the one that was put through for the distributor that goes under the harbour bridge. There were old coal tunnels that push well under the harbour from um, Balmain and out through that sandstone. But it was only sometime after the harbour bridge was built that we started to realise that it was stable enough, this six kilometre deep sandstone bed, to actually be able to dig in. So now we have the under harbour tunnel but we also have our new metro systems being built. So as we look out we can imagine that there are two big underground drills that are working away under the water and under the, you know, who knows what else, under the bridge. Under the, <laughs> and they've, they're called... Um, Nancy and Kathleen are the two drills. <laughs> uh, and I love to look out now across the harbour and imagine them busily burrowing more sort of secret passages under the harbour through that amazingly old stone. <laughs> we can only imagine the river that brought these grains to rest, for it has long vanished. 
Its vast fossilised floodplain, however, indicates that it was the size of the Ganges, or, or larger, and its headwaters lay in the high mountains of Antarctica. As it flowed north along what is now the east coast of Australia, it lost velocity. By the time it reached Sydney, it was too feeble to transport sand grains more than a few millimetres in diameter. So the stone is composed of remarkably uniform grains of about that size. Tim Flannery, The Sandstone City. So we're on Darlinghurst Road at the walls of the old Darlinghurst Jail, which were built between 1820 and 1824. So a lot of the early colonial architecture used sandstone, but they called it freestone at that time. And so we're just near the Darlinghurst, um, very magnificent Darlinghurst Courts, which uh, have that particular yellow-gold sandstone facade. But uh, most of that beautiful sandstone for Sydney's big buildings was dug out of Ultimo. If you were working with a pick and a chisel, to, and actually a mallet and chisel I think is what they used, to dig out the big blocks of sandstone, you'd be actually working next to a blacksmith who'd be constantly sharpening your chisel next to you. And those quarries in Ultimo were called um, very famously heaven, hell and purgatory, depending on the quality of the sandstone and the difficulty of extracting it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but this sandstone here was extracted by a convict chain gang from Barkham Glen. So if we look behind us to St Vincent's Hospital, mm. Barkham Glen was ran along behind the hospital, kind of down to where we were before in Rushcutters so Bay. So this is quite, quite local so, stone. Yes, it's very local stone. And one of the things you see about Sydney as well is that there are these little tiny remains of quarries everywhere. So as Sydney built itself, it kind of, you know, it, it sort of cannibalised the ground in a way, kind of dug these, dug these, this um, plentiful supply of freestone out of the out of all these different little areas that you still sort of sometimes stumble across as you're walking around areas like like Woolloomooloo or Darlinghurst but why I brought you to this particular um, piece of wall is that we're standing looking at again quite fantastically weathered sandstone um, with a good amount of sort of Sydney peak traffic behind us and you can actually see the the convicts pick marks now, this is something yes. that used to really fascinate me um, when I was a child and I was always you know hyper aware of them and there's this sense that I guess again of the dark side of Sydney that you know you're the Georgian um, side involved a you know a certain level of sort of pain and suffering and here you could sort of see that in many of the buildings that I used to walk past in my childhood I'd be terribly aware of the of uh, these pick marks and then what we can also see in the facade here is what are called dark marks which are the marks of the individual people working on the chain gang okay. where they each would have their own mark and they found about 80 separate marks and that would be the way that you would say well I've done my fair share of work for the day and um, these are the stones that I have cut out so you know there's a kind of a So I like the fact that although so much work that goes into public buildings is mm. anonymous, that these yes. men have left their particular signatures on um, all these different stones and they're here in such a public place as you, as you, you know, that so many people walk to and fro, you know, past going to the hospital or going into the National Art School, which is just in behind this wall now. I wonder if they had a sense of that, that perpetuity as they, as mm. they marked that stone. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know how long. You know, uh, I don't know what you'd be thinking as you were uh, doing it because it just seems like such a, uh, you know, truly hellish sort of job. We're here for a short time and not for a good time. That's, That's right. 
Those pick marks are extraordinary, and they're, they're, they're such small, little frail scrapings on that rock. That's chip, right. chip, chip, That's chip, right. chip away at those, those huge surfaces. And I like the fact we've got a bit of graffiti over here, so we've got some kind of modern dark marks <laughs> that someone's sort of added in the yeah. palimpsest that is Sydney. You know, there are always in that, those sort of sedimentary layers that kind of, you know, build up. Setting of convicts against That's eastern right. suburbs, private school children. Lovely. And um, the, other <laughs> the other reason that I brought you here was, of course, that this stretch of this wall of the prison, which goes all the way around to, actually goes all the way around to Burton Street, but this particular part has always been famous, or I should say notorious in Sydney, as, as the wall as well, which is, especially in the period between the 60s and the 80s, was not just a beat, but also a place where a lot of, I think there were up to 60 male sex workers, and a lot of them very young, but who would work this particular stretch of the wall. So again, we've got those layers in in Sydney of this sort of sensual stone of sex of um, you know of, of, of time passing of you know different forms of labor all in this one stretch of, of wall it's a remarkable sedimentary city mm. you've been listening to lost and found a blueprint for living production this week on sandstone and check out our companion piece on Bluestone. You can find that on the Blueprint page on the RN website or, of course, on the ABC Listen app. In Sandstone, you heard author Delia Faulkner. Producers are Lisa DeVisi and Rosa Ellen. Technical production by Chrissy Miltiadu. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.